0: So just to review some principles, principles. Uh, We want to acknowledge truth wherever it is, no matter who's bringing it, right? If you acknowledge truth for what it is, even when it's packaged together, Satan loves to mingle truth and error, okay? But if you can acknowledge the truth, then the error gets separated and stands on its own. But if you feel like you have to accept a whole package, then a lot of times that error... You know, because you're not discerning or acknowledging each truth. You can bring in the whole thing. So you just want to acknowledge truth uh, for what it is. We've learned that nature is the key that unlocks the treasure house of the Word of God. And again, that's a powerful statement. Again, we see that faith is the substance of of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen and so it is with, with nature nature is the evidence that God spoke and this is the record of what he spoke okay so the two go hand in hand first I just told you in that last session that I'm actually Adventist because someone left a steps to Christ in a house when my mom was about 20 years old and she read that book and she said if we ever need a church this is the one You know what the first sentence of the steps to Christ is? Yes, perfect nature and revelation alike testify of God. And yet somehow that being like the first principle that is the step to Christ. We sometimes present like any talk of nature as a lesson book for us as opposed to Christ alone you understand? They're not opposed. One is the second half of the other. And together, they make a whole. Not one-sided thing, but a whole. Um, So there's many, many blessings uh, for looking at the lessons God has for us in nature. I told you last session that going through Steps of Christ, that took me through Adventism, but I ran to the world. And I really ran after exalting self and what the world had to offer me. And I started to do things to get that that I never imagined that I ever would. It was never my intention to do those things, it just step by step. You know, there are steps to Christ and there are steps to Antichrist. It's just the way it is. So we're going to pray, and I'm going to show you the temptation that Jesus overcame at the beginning of his ministry and how that relates to my story, but then also um, the Antichrist. okay? And then we're going to get into effort and enemies of our effort. And of course, I'm going to, through that, just weave in my testimony of getting out of that awful state to how did I get here? Okay, so we'll do all that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is you that worketh in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. So I just pray that right now we each would invite you in, that we would hear your gentle knock at our door, that by faith, looking at Jesus, we could see the face of our Father lovingly correcting us, and that we would be not forget the, the encouragement to know that as you correct us, you're treating us as a loving Father would his Son. So I just thank you for for giving us power to be sons of God now. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to lead us in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want you to start. We left off last session. Some of you were here. Some of you weren't. I was on a track to become a successful basketball coach, um, gaining awards, winning championships. But in order to do those things, compromising just about everything. And really, my eternal life, if it wasn't for the mercy and patience and grace of God. Okay? So, there I was um, at this point. During that time of, of compromise, I actually wrote a goal with my wife. And the goal was that I was going to do whatever it took to become a college coach because I would make a lot more money doing that and it would be, you know, it would support all of our worldly dreams. So that's where I was, and that's where we're going to pick up. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Some of you will know this very, very well. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, and we're talking about the temptation. Jesus was led into the wilderness, where He was tempted by Satan... And we have record of three temptations. Do you remember them? The first one? Bread. Which, by the way, you know, I've been talking about food, and I'm not going to spend a whole session on that, but I could. All the places where food has been a test for his disciples, for his followers, in the garden, the tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Right here for Jesus in the wilderness. You know, right before he fed the 5,000 you can go look this up later right before he fed the 5,000 he asked a disciple a question he said where are you gonna buy your food and then the Bible says and he asked this to test him so I'm actually gonna ask you where are you gonna buy your food you know do you want your food to be delivered secondhand you know, right now we all depend on second-hand food, I'm guessing. Maybe some of us grow all of our own food. No. OK, <laughs> Partially. Most of us depend on secondhand food, but brothers and sisters, when it comes to spiritual food, it's easier. I'm telling you, it's easier to get all of your own spiritual food firsthand than it is to grow your own food in nature. It's easier. Because it comes with decision, and you can start today. And I'll show you how that plays into my, the way that the Lord pulled me out of where I was. Here, Jesus is having three tests. The first one on bread. The second one, um, in, at least in the order that Matthew relates those three temptations, the second one was tempting God by casting himself down and having the angels hold him up. And then the third one we're going to read in detail. So I want you to go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So... You know, the fine print there was, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all these things. I actually signed that agreement. Do you realize by my actions, I actually signed that temptation with the devil? You know, it wasn't literal, like I didn't have a day where I'm just going to leave God and I'm going to join the devil. But step by step, slowly by slowly, I actually signed that agreement. I wanted the power, the glory of the world. And so I was worshiping Satan. I didn't know it. And so he had control over my thoughts. He had control over a lot of my actions. And so I was in a very bad place. Now I want you to contrast that, just spiritually. Because some of us don't really like the book of Revelation because... You know, we lose the fact that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. But if, and sometimes we have fear, but we've been trying to dispel that fear by looking closer at the face of Jesus. And the Re- book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I, wanna, I want us to go there. I want us to go to the book of Revelation. And we're going to start in chapter 13. Okay. It says here in chapter 13 in verse 1, "And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and 10 horns, and upon his horns 10 crowns, and upon the, his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, And his mouth, the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, who's the dragon? Where do you know that? How do we know that? Yes, chapter 12 says, the dragon is that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. Right? Yes. So here it's talking now about Satan, and it says, and Satan gave him his power. And his seat and his authority. And so who is this beast coming up? What do we call this beast? The Antichrist, right? So there's Christ at the beginning of his public ministry, being tempted with the power and the glory of the earth's kingdoms. If you will just worship me. And Jesus says, no. that's That's a diverging path. And so the Antichrist basically gets presented the same thing. The dragon comes to the Antichrist and says, I will give you the power and the seat and the authority on earth. But the Antichrist says, yes, and I will worship you. Right? Because the beast causes all them that worship him to worship the dragon, it says. So the beast clearly signed the agreement, met the condition, I will worship you. And therefore, I want in exchange the power and the kingdom and the authority on this earth. So these are kind of like current events for us. Okay, that that power is still at work. Unfortunately, um, there's another beast that comes up out of the earth and this beast will give um, a persecuting power to those that do not worship the image of this beast, which causes those to worship the beast. And if those are worshiping the beast, then they're worshiping the one who gave him his authority and power, which is Satan. So that there's these you know, few entities in Revelation, and this is not really a Revelation seminar, so I'm not going to go detail. I'm just going to do overview, and then you can go study this out. But there's the dragon who gives the beast his power. That beast agreed the opposite of Jesus. That's why we call it Antichrist. He said, I will worship Satan in exchange for the power on earth. And then there's an image to the beast. The image to the beast um, causes those who will worship the image of the beast to worship the beast, which has its power and authority from Satan. And then there's a lamb-like beast that speaks as a dragon, and this one actually persecutes those and causes those harm who do not worship the image of the beast okay so those are really your your main entities in Revelation so once you kind of get that overview then you can start to read Revelation and, and understand what's going on now that last beast though is that lamb like beast that speaks like a dragon is what the lamb like beast that speaks like a dragon is the United States of America did you know that oh you don't need to have swyc daniel revelation version and just go through it because this is true for this time okay so if you don't know that what that means is the united states of america we see in in the history of the church this uniting of civil authority that means government power and religious authority and they unite so that means the church if there's someone that disagrees, like right now, if you disagree with what I'm saying, what consequence is it to you? None, well one, I'm a self-supporting person, but what if I were the president of the conference and you disagree with me? None. Now, it's possible I could disfellowship you, but I can't put you in prison, I can't hang you, I can't put you to death. Okay, but if I had the police on my side and the judicial system on my side, then all of a sudden I can, right? So what we see here is the United States of America is actually going to be used to unite with the image of the beast and cause a persecuting power. Now, you would say, how can the land of the free and the home of the brave become a place where people are persecuted for having like a religious stance, First of all, what's the first way that they're going to persecute? Do you know? What's that? Financial boycott. Financial boycott. So they're going to say anyone who does not receive the mark of the beast cannot buy or sell. So I kind of ask you again, this was not the intent of the seminar, but since we're here, I'm going to ask you again, where are you going to buy your food when you cannot buy or sell? Are you actually preparing for this time? Because these are the words of Jesus. Some of us want Jesus, but we don't want what Jesus says. Right? The two cannot be separated. His word has power. It creates nature. His word tells us these are going to happen, and they will happen. And so if we accept it all, then we will be prepared, and we'll we'll be in a place where we can be the light of the world because we lived in harmony with his word, and even what he warned us about. So here it is that the United States of America is going to persecute people by taking away their right to buy or sell. Now, is this really, really a, a far stretch? It's actually not. Do you know what's happening right now in Iran? There's like an uprising. People don't like the government in Iran. And so the United States, through the United Nations, has actually put a financial trade barrier on them, saying you cannot buy or sell with the rest of the world. And so their currency is in the tank. I have a church member um, who I know has inside information with what's going on over there. The reason I'm saying the way I'm saying is, do you know that in Iran, it is illegal to be Christian? There are small Christian groups meeting underground. And when the people are caught, they're put in prison. When they get out of prison, they get out on certain conditions. And if they're caught a second time, they're hung, put to death. So my friend has friends who have been put to death because they're Christian. Okay? So my friend is telling me that people over there right now, um, you know, they have plenty of food in their country, so no one is starving. But there are really severe inconveniences. Like if the refrigerator breaks, they're not importing replacement parts. So now people are going out, going without refrigeration, which now is affecting the way they're eating. And then their stove, if it breaks, they're unable to fix it. So these are things that are actually happening right now. It's putting a lot of pressure on those people over there. But we are going to have the similar pressures in that we will not be able to buy or sell. We will not be able to buy or sell. Okay? I wanted to show you this Antichrist thing, this divergence. Because, just like we mentioned before, there are steps to Christ, and there are steps to Antichrist. Okay, you don't just one day end up being, you know, receiving the mark of the beast. You take steps there. Okay, you take steps there. And that's why we really need to get back to the steps to Christ. And even the first principles, just start at the beginning. Nature and revelation alike testify of God. Okay, so start at the beginning and walk your way to Christ. And if you do, then you'll be saved. Because Christ is both willing and able to save you. Willing and able. Okay? Willing and able. That's very important. If you get those two concepts, if you get nothing else except God is both willing and able. Willing and able to save you. Then, if you're not saved, is it his fault? No. Let's go see just how able he is. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Or let's start in 17. I just want to put it in more context. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints. Who are the saints? Those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Right? Okay, so then it says that we can comprehend with all the saints what? What is the breadth, length, and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So when we talk about like perfecting Christian character, this is saying that you can be filled with the fullness of God. Now we ask... Is God willing to do that for you? Yes, He is, right? Is He able to do that for you? There's an argument right now in our church. Some people say they don't want to hear about perfecting Christian character. And so I want to talk right now that the Bible calls you to diligent effort. It says, add, or giving all diligence, add to your faith these other things, right? Virtue, knowledge, temperance, those things that lead all the way to charity, which is the love, the height, depth, breadth, and love of God, and the fullness of God can dwell in you. And I want to dispel the fact that you cannot, just like Jonathan and his armor bearer in the last session, could not overcome an army of a million by themselves, but God shook the earth on their behalf, okay? If God is able then why can't we? The only reason would be that he would not be willing. Right? Because if he's able, then, you know, so you say, what's impossible for God? Nothing. Nothing. There's only one thing the Bible says is impossible for God. It says in one place, all things are possible through Christ, right? So if you truly believe that, then you would have to say he's able. The Bible only says there's one thing that's impossible. And it says it is impossible for him to lie. Because when his mouth speaks, it happens. Unless he puts a condition on it. And then when that condition is met, it happens. Do you understand? That's how we have trees. Because he said, let there be trees. And boom, there it is. It's just, it happens. He can't say, let there be trees and there'll be no trees. It just happens. Okay? The power is in his voice and his word. When he says it, it happens. It happens. So we have faith in it. So when he says that you can be a partaker of the divine nature, you can come into the full stature of Christ, the fullness of Christ can be in you, it can. It can. If we say it can't, we're either saying He's not able, but it's hard to say He's not able. And sometimes we're so happy that we can do nothing that we don't want anything to happen. But we've missed the next part, that with Christ all things are possible, through Christ who strengthens me. Right? So all things are possible through Christ who strengthens me. Do you believe that? So then the only reason we wouldn't be able to come into the fullness of Christ is if we say that he's not willing, which is disbelief. And blasphemy, actually, because you look at Jesus. Oh, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus crawling in Gethsemane back to his, back to his disciples. I mean, I was crying when I first read this. In Desire of Ages, there's a chapter called Gethsemane. And I'm going to teach you how to be a missionary. Did you know that you can just about be an active, successful missionary today? Okay, I'm going to show you through Gethsemane. Jesus was off praying, and the Father was withdrawing himself from Jesus. And the weight and the fear was coming upon Jesus because he was afraid that his humanity was going to be too weak to endure the trial that was upon him. And sometimes that's what we're afraid of too. But Jesus proved that it wasn't. You know, being separated from from the Father, he was afraid of that. Jesus was sweating drops of blood, and he needed some relief from all of this strain that he was going through. And he literally crawling face down back to his disciples. And Jesus was 100% human. Do you understand that? Just like you and me. And 100% divine. 100% God 100% human. And so his body, he's crawling back to the disciples. God loves you so much that he sent his son. Not just his son. He sent his son to suffer on all points like we are. So he was crawling back. And do you know what his humanity needed for relief during that hour, that pressing hour? Desire of Ages tells us. It says he was crawling back in when he got to his disciples he found them sleeping he said if he would have found them praying like understanding what he was going through he would have found relief God the Father loves you so much that he put his son into a human body susceptible to the need of human sympathy for relief can you imagine that the God of heaven, the one that can speak and create, needed in his hour of temptation, he needed a human, an erring sinful human, to sympathize with him for relief. Can you believe that? I mean, what vulnerability did Jesus put himself in, did God put his son in, to actually require The sympathies of just these sinners in order to find relief isn't that an amazing position that he put his son in now here's what we know then from that it says that the human heart longs for sympathy the human heart longs for sympathy jesus had a human heart and it longed for sympathy it longed for sympathy so here's how you can make that practical you know your churches these conferences they tell you that you need to be doing the work of god and if you yoke with him and go into that work you will learn of him that's the beautiful thing you work not to gain favor I mean, he worked to be at his side and to develop a character right at his side. And so that when he returns in the clouds, you'll have no fear. Do you know why? Because you've been right next to him, your master teacher. And so when you see him come, you'll see your savior, your redeemer, and your teacher. The one that you've been following his voice your whole life. So as you go enter that work, you say, what do the people need? You know what the... A lot of people organizing like youth ministries and things are like, what do these youth need? Well, they need like um, you know, concerts, or they need this or that. You know. You know what they need? Sympathy. The human heart longs for sympathy. Every human heart, every human heart longs for sympathy, including Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That is an awesome, powerful tool to know. By looking at Jesus, we now know what the human heart needs. You can walk anywhere. You can walk into a prison. You can walk into an orphanage. You can walk into a nursing home. You can walk into the middle of um, an inner city gang. It doesn't matter where you walk. You already know what their human heart longs for. Sympathy. Sympathy. And you don't have to have talent, wealth, skill, degrees, or much education at all to sympathize with them. The thing is, we have to know what sympathy is. It's sympathizing with the struggle to get from where they are to a better place. Sometimes we think sympathy is joining them in what they're doing. No, we don't want to roll around in the mud with them. We want to sympathize with them of, that they might not be able to see a better way. We want to sympathize with them of maybe how they got to where they are. You know, the devil is deceptive, and he's stronger than humans, but he's not more powerful than God. So we can sympathize with the struggles. We can sympathize with the pains. We can sympathize with the griefs and the disappointments we have in life, and even we can sympathize with the the ungodly ambitions that people have. And so if we can just acknowledge that, acknowledge that that might exist in their heart and that they have a need instead of like, I can't believe you've done that. I mean, you know, no, I can believe you've done that. This world is a tricky place, but there's something better. There's a way out. Our Savior has something better for you. The way we deal with people will be so different if there's people in your church that are uh, disagreeing with you or maybe coming to wrong theological conclusions or could you sympathize with them you know you don't have to agree with their position but you can sympathize that they've come to a wrong position you know because have you always been out of error no so if you take nothing away from this session other than that so the human heart longs for sympathy, and now that you have that, you can go out and meet the longings of the human heart. Isn't that awesome? You're a missionary now. But it's a service of reconciliation, not to yourself, but to God. So make sure that when you're sympathizing, you're not trying to just reconcile them to you, but reconcile them to the source of life. Okay, because you have no life in you. So reconcile them to God. Okay. So there we see that. Now I want to talk about giving all diligence, right? We said we need to give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. And God calls us to a very high calling. It seems impossible. And through us, it is. You can do nothing. But with Christ, all things are possible. So we ask the question, is he willing? Yes, we see him crawling on the ground to his disciples to get sympathy and later getting beaten and mocked and stripped and hung on a cross. He's proven he's willing. And he's able. The Bible's theme of him being able goes throughout. If you look in the book of Daniel, okay, if you look in the book of Daniel, um, there's Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He asks his astrologers and his wise men to interpret the dream. They say, No man on earth is able to do this. And so then he asks Daniel, Are you able to do this? And he says, No, but there is a God in heaven who is able. When Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, do you remember this? The test was the king came back, Darius comes back, he looks into the lion's den and he says, Daniel was your God whom you serve continually, able to save you. The three young Hebrews, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Right before that though, they say, our God is able to save us, but if not, we will not heed you king, we will not bow down to your image, right? So they acknowledge that God's able, over and over and over in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He, he started to lift himself up, and God knocked him down. Sent him out. For seven years eating grass like a beast. Brings him back in, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I now worship and extol and honor the God of heaven, who is able to abase him who exalts himself. Okay? So the theme of ability of God is throughout the whole Bible. So if we're saved by faith and you haven't come to the conclusion that God is able to fulfill his promises in you, then your faith is not built on knowledge or the rock. So if you don't have that faith, I sympathize with you because I didn't always have that faith. Okay, But it's so clear in the Bible that I'm encouraging you to go figure it out for yourself. And don't take it from me because, again, I don't want you to get secondhand food. I want you to go to the storehouse yourself. Okay, so don't take it from me, but it is there. So then, the only other argument against being able to fulfill the divine nature in us is is God willing? And, and we've already addressed that. He is. So then, it becomes us. God has made every provision for your salvation. He's put into work all of heaven's agencies. In Christ, he gave all of heaven in one gift. And then through this ministry of the angels, continuously, the intercession in the heavenly sanctuary, our high priest is not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of your infirmities. That means he can sympathize with you. Our high priest right now can sympathize with you. If you're addicted to things that you shouldn't be, Um, you know, even like entertainments or sports or all those things. The reason I say sports is because some of you missed it. But, you know, I was like going to the peak of sports and it was taking me further from God. I had signed that agreement with the devil, basically saying that I want the kingdom, the glory and the power of this earth in exchange for worshiping Satan. I was not taking steps to Christ. I was taking steps to Antichrist. But God is so merciful and patient with me that he put me in situations. He let me run after my own ways to the point that I was so miserable and so unsatisfied. You know, the first year we won a a championship, I thought I was pretty satisfied. It was fun. The second year we won, it was relief. It wasn't fun anymore because it was expected. And then the third year, we didn't actually win a championship, but we had a lot of success. And um, it was, like, miserable. It wasn't even fun at all. And that was the grace of God. It was the grace of God making me miserable. Making me miserable was the grace of God. You can read about it. in. Lamentations chapter 3. There's a, it starts out: I'm a man who has seen um, the correction of the Lord, or the chastening of the Lord, and he talks about it. He's like he was a bear lying in wait to me. He was like gravel in the teeth. It was he was shooting me with arrows. It was just awful. I had misery and sorrow, and those things are beautiful because it saved him. It saved him. And so it saved me. So I actually changed everything. Um I was so bad, I wanted to go to a different place. We were going to move back to the mainland, so I left everything. I wasn't chasing God yet. I was just leaving that situation, just trying to reach out for something better. And then, as I was reaching out for something better, um, I began to read my Bible daily, looking for something better. And I read a book called Adventist Home. Are you familiar with that? The first time I tried to read Adventist home, I read just about a paragraph or so, and I put it down. It, it just was so uncomfortable, <laughs> so uncomfortable. I picked it up a few weeks later and started reading it again, and this time I didn't put it down. And I was like, wow, this is, this is different. This sounds so much more peaceful than what I have. And so I began to read and read and read and pray and read and start to ask the Lord to give us something better. We actually cut a lot of ties. We, we decided we were going to move to the country and start um, doing some of the things we were reading about in Adventist homes. So we moved from, I was in Chinatown. I lived in Chinatown in a sky rise in, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And so I asked my company if I could move and not work in the office anymore, they said, okay, so I moved to the garden island of Kauai. It's not really developed, it's beautiful. You go into the beach, and it was like the beach was all yours. You could look this way, look that way, and not a single person. It was, you were poor, but it was like you were a king on earth. It was like you owned the island, it was amazing. But we wanted to do agriculture, and although you can own the beach just by being there, you can't really own a field and start planting it. So we could not afford land there, and we decided to move our family to, you know, leave Hawaii, leave paradise. So I've already once, when I moved to um, Kauai, when I moved to Kauai, I um, was willing to move anywhere at any cost. I told my company, I was, had a good position. I worked for one of the 15th largest companies in America, and I had a managerial position. And I was new at the industry and learning quickly. And so I was now kind of heading towards success in that route instead of the sports. Okay, I was no longer coaching, but now I was fulfilling that with corporate success. And, uh, but I was willing to put that all at risk. So I told my company I'm going to move. Um, And actually, at first, we were going to move to Japan because that's where my wife is from. We were going to move to Japan and leave everything behind. But my company said, oh, you can work from Japan. And I gave them about five or six months' notice. And so we were about ready to move. And we had everything sold. We had all the plane tickets. My wife and children went ahead of me. And I only had about. 10 days left before I was gonna fly. I had my visa and everything. And then they called me in to the office and they said, um, you know, some corporate tax attorney was doing the final work through review of your case and they said that there's a problem with the benefits, you know, of us giving you benefits in Japan and it would take some pretty significant cost and legal fees um, to, to work that out. So they've decided since you're just a unique case, that they didn't want to make that financial investment. You know, because their attorneys, if we're big companies like that, their attorneys make like $450 an hour. And so to do that for us was just not on their agenda. It wasn't a priority. So they said, um, so you're going to have to go without a job. Well, I don't know if you know anything about the Japanese people, but when they get a job, they stick with it usually until they retire. I mean, they just uh, put their head down and work. So we were going to go stay with my wife's parents while we were looking for our own place. We had houses picked out. We had a realtor there lined up. We had the imagination of this little farm. And and I had to call my wife and tell her the news that I'm going to have to come without a job. And so she told her parents. And her parents said, don't come without a job. Don't come without a job. So we had sold everything my family's in japan and i've got like nothing so i'm scrambling what can i do so i i proposed to my company what if i can move to the garden island Kauai, because at least it's better than chinatown for us um and so they said yes you could work from there because they were going to let me work in japan it's just that they couldn't work it out legally and so then going to Kauai was easy so then. We moved to Kauai. I was there for a year. I volunteered for organic farmers. And we learned some amazing things. And we, we knew by experience at that point that we wanted to raise our girls on a little country farm. But we couldn't afford it. So again, we were willing to let paradise go. We had been there for 10 years. Both of my girls were born there. We, Hawaii was beautiful. And so we moved, willing to go anywhere to try to get what we were reading about. And so we went to Ohio. Not because that's where we really wanted to be, but because uh, that's where I'm from, and we had things that we were moving from you know, overseas, and you just need some place for them to land. So we were going to go there and then start looking around. And it turned out that my company, I told them when I was going to move to the mainland actually, from Kauai, I told them I'm going to move to the mainland with or without you. Same thing I said like a year and a half before when we were going to move to Japan. And they said, oh. Well, don't go without us. You, know, you can transfer to the corporate, um, a corporate team and work from wherever you go in, on the mainland. And I said, OK, but under one condition, I can work from home. I want to work from home, not from an office. And so they said, OK. I got there to Ohio, and we were going to go all over the place. And then I was interviewing with that corporate office after I had gone to Ohio, I mean the corporate team, and the person said well if you join our team you're going to have to report to an office and i was like that i gave you six months notice and that was the condition so there again i was faced with it with an opportunity to either quit that job or continue we chose to continue but we bought a small 10 acre farm in ohio and we began to farm we didn't know what we were doing i mean we knew almost nothing but the lord prospered us we had so many watermelons that year We were just giving away truckloads of watermelons. I didn't know how to sell them. I should have known how to sell them. But we were just giving them away, and they were really, really good. We had so many tomatoes. And then we met someone who told us how to sell. And I'll just share that with you. I mean, it's just one way, there's many ways. But for us, the way just to get our foot in the door was he said, just go to a local grocery store, go and ask if you can talk to their produce manager. So we found the one that we thought was like the healthiest, largest, healthiest, kind of organic, local type of grocery store. And so we went in, and I just went to the service desk, said, can I talk to the produce manager? They said, she's right over there. So I went over and talked to her. I just said, hi, I'm Anthony, I'm just here. I grow food organically. And um, would you like to buy some? (laughs) You know, it wasn't like professional. She said, why don't you just bring me some samples? I should have had them with me, but I didn't know anything. So if you ever do that, take samples with you. So we had to go home. We, came, we made an appointment with her, and we came back. And she told us, she said, just don't bring us your tomatoes. We have a good tomato supplier. We don't need tomatoes. So when I came back, I brought everything I had, including our tomatoes. Because <laughs> our tomatoes were good. You know, They had re- nice, beautiful, red, perfectly round tomatoes. We were growing like heirloom varieties that were like shape of a flame with all these colors and you know really deep flavors. And I knew she didn't have anything like that. So we brought them anyway. She tastes everything, actually. And she loved it. And she bought our tomatoes. <laughs> and she placed orders for everything we had. And she gave us really good prices. We had a Japanese cucumber about this big. Um, and you know the long ones that usually come in like plastic we didn't have plastic but we had those big japanese cucumbers they were giving us $3.15 each for a cucumber which grows like a weed have you ever grown have you ever grown cucumbers $3.15 you know how much they would give me for a watermelon $3 but a little cucumber, they were giving me $3.15. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were just delivering beets and tomatoes and cucumbers and watermelons. I mean, our garden did not look organized. It had weeds everywhere. Our tomatoes were not even strung up. They were just laying on the ground. We were like digging and throwing out all the rotten ones and just taking the ones that looked good and just doing what we could. We didn't know anything about what we were doing but the Lord was our teacher and he was so gracious to give us something to get started with. Okay, just so gracious. We didn't have a fence around our garden and he kept back the things just so we wouldn't be discouraged. You know why? Because he sympathized with us. He looked at us and he goes, oh, look at my little children. They don't even know what they're doing. (laughs) I'm gonna have to work on their behalf and just keep the deer away this year. The next year we start selling again. And we planted a whole field of pinto beans. And we didn't think they were going to want pinto beans. And no one in Ohio is growing pinto beans. Nobody's growing pinto beans. Most of the agriculture in Ohio is like corn and soybeans. And they just rotate. One year, you can count on it. Oh, there's a field of corn. Next year, that's going to be soybeans. And sure enough, it's soybeans. And the next year, it's going to be corn. Um, there are a few small farmers doing a variety of things. But they're usually doing like kales and tomatoes. and cucumbers, like all the things I said. But no one's just growing like a field of pinto beans. And they're so common, you can go to Walmart and get a whole like 10 or 12 pound bag for just a dollar or something. We didn't think we were gonna sell them, we just thought we wanted them for ourselves. We wanted to try, it was gonna be fun. So, but we had so many, we decided, let's take her a sample of our pinto beans. And so we took some pinto beans to her and she said, oh, I'm glad you brought these to me. I have a few guests coming over from out of town, and they like are really you know, into local and organic produce from where they're at. So I'm going to serve your beans to them and see how they taste. And if they're good, then we'll order some. So sure enough, she calls us. She's like, those are the best beans we've ever had. <laughs> Can you bring them to me? And so I said, sure. So when we got there... And she was already treating us well, so we didn't even negotiate prices. Whatever the price they would give us, we would just sell it. You know how much she gave us for pinto beans? I mean, we're selling wholesale. She's going to resell them. $4 a pound wow. for pinto beans. <laughs> now, I'm going to put that in perspective. The soybeans that the big farmers grow was like at an like a all-time high at $16 a bushel. If you take the $4 a pound and put it into a bushel price, it was $240 a bushel. I mean, it's a crazy price. But we didn't have any like mechanized way of harvesting and shelling these beans. So it was, it was like me and my little daughters just over <laughs> there like shelling beans. But they actually liked it because it gave family time and we were talking, we'd take breaks. And it was sometimes we do it under a tree And, of course, then we'd get hot and sweaty, and they would say, can we go make some watermelon juice? Sure. And they'd bring it out, you know, right under the tree, and we'd shell beans. And so, but the store got impatient with us. They said, "Um, you know, we're out of your beans. We're selling out of your beans. People really like those beans. And I can't imagine what price they were charging for them. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) but they were giving us $4 a pound, and they were sold out. And they were like, give us more. And I said, you know what? We're shelling just about as fast as we can. We can't go any faster. And you know what they said? This is amazing. I mean, we didn't have any like, business plan experience or anything. They said, here's what you do. Just grab the whole plant out of the ground. Put it in trash bags. Bring those to us. We'll weigh the whole trash bag and give you $2 a pound. Can you believe that? (laughs) For pinto beans. I mean, just common old pinto beans. Do you know where we got those pinto beans to start with? We went to Walmart and got a bag of pinto beans (laughs) (laughs) for like 99 cents, and we planted them all. (laughs) I mean, the Lord says, when he says, be fruitful and multiply, oh, wow, you can experience this like firsthand. So, we were selling these, or, not or, like certified organic, we weren't certified, we just said we're organically growing them because we didn't even know enough to fertilize them with anything. So, these were like just unirrigated, unfertilized, on everything. You know, my friend likes that philosophy actually, and so he says we need to like coin the phrase left alone. And I don't know, I actually like to get my hands on things now and, you know, do things um, and get better. but. At that point, we didn't know anything, so this is just whatever was coming out of the ground, and we were selling these. And so they were shelling them then in the store. I don't, you know, we didn't even know enough to like, you know, hang them or beat them or put them on a table. And be, you know, we didn't know anything, so we we're just shelling with our little thumbs. <laughs> so I gave I gave my little daughters, you know, they're like four, maybe five, and seven a great business opportunity. I said, you know what? They're giving us $2 a pound for all of this stuff, but if you still shell them, I'll give you the extra $2, because they would still give us $4 a pound for shelled beans. So if you shell beans, I'll give you $2 a pound. And so they could shell beans, and they could make like 10 or $12 an hour at like five years old. <laughs> and that was pretty good. <laughs> That was pretty good. And they didn't mind it. They liked it. They would just do it like you know, they wouldn't do it all day. It's just when we were hot and wanted a break and to sit down anyway, they would just shell beans. Keep their little fingers busy. And they made like ten or twelve dollars an hour at five years old. And so this is like kind of the steps to my life you can see has changed totally by this point. I'm not like striving for victories. And in worldly honor, by this point, the love of the world is starting to really shrink in my heart. And I love it. And I was, the Lord says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I was tasting and seeing that the Lord was good. And all those things you read about in our councils about like the A's and C's of education is agriculture. I mean, it's true. You can have a wonderful experience out there. Not the way agriculture is typically done, though. You know, it's so sad, Satan's system, because a lot of the people in agriculture are worked like slaves. You know, if you read Ecclesiastes, that will tell you in the Bible, you know, describing the earth made new, it says, a man will plant and not another eat. You know what that means? The person who's planting and harvesting will be the person who gets to enjoy the fruit. In another place, it says um, the husbandman or the farmer must first be partakers of the fruit. Okay? So God's system is that when you plant, if you sow much, you will reap much, right? But the way agriculture is done, it's put so low because the people involved are not not the field owners. They're not the orchard owners. They don't even sometimes get to eat the fruit. A young man was telling me he was volunteering for even an Adventist farm. And he called the owner of the farm and he said, can my wife and I have an apple? You know, they had like orchards. And he said, you can have one each. And that was it, even though they were working there. You know, it was like so rigid and so not liberal in a good way. You know, just this liberality of giving. And so God wants us to get to that point where if we have, that we have so much abundance that we can just start giving. So we started giving. We had, this was not just then for us or like, you'd say, well, how can God use a little family who's like withdrawing themselves from the cities where everyone needs to be reached? Go to the country. How can he use that to reach people? Well, first of all, the store we were delivering to was in the city. So we were going there every week with produce, every week. But the people there like, knew us. They're like, we haven't seen your wife. How is she? You know? And it was, it was a wonderful thing. But we put out this little roadside stand. Actually, it was like a feeding trough for animals. And it was just there on our farm. It was kind of rickety and old looking. But people like that kind of stuff. I don't know if you know. It's because everything is made of plastic now, so people want something tangible. So they actually like anything with texture. Um, so we took this thing and I drug it up by the road and I painted, we hand painted, my daughters and I hand painted signs like homegrown, organic, and all these things. And we put boxes of produce out there. And then we put a little honor system box where they could put money in and take their own produce. But we put a sign there and it said, open six days a week, close Saturday. <laughs> and you know, um, I was over there working and my next door neighbor who I didn't know very well but we had like some conversations, he came by and he stopped and so he got out of his truck and he was a cattle farmer and the, you know, his license plate said beef, you know, he was like. And so I found out <laughs> later, I always, I, did, I could never remember names very well so I nicknamed him I nicknamed him Nabe, okay, short for neighbor. So I'm like, hey, neighbor. And so I admitted to him one day, I'm like, you know, I've got to admit something. I couldn't really remember your name, so I just call you Nabe. And he was like, oh, that's all right. I have a nickname for you, too. I call you Mr. Vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take it. Um, But he was there at our stand, and he says, you know, something's been bothering me. He goes, what do you believe? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, are you Christian? I said, yes, I am. What kind of Christian are you? And I said, well, and before I could answer, he goes, are you Seventh-day Adventist? (laughs) And I was like, how did you know? He said... Your roadside stand sign has been bothering me for weeks. Why would anyone close an honor system stand down? This says close Saturday. Why not just leave it open? And he said, I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and it bothered me so much. And so I had to ask you, are you Seventh-day Adventists? I said, yes. He said, what do Seventh-day Adventists believe? I said, I believe that. The word Adventist means we believe that Jesus is coming back soon. Or I said, no, I didn't say soon. I just said, we believe that Jesus is coming back. And then he responds. And this is like a man in the world, not Christian, not doing anything. He says, pretty soon, by the way, things are looking. Okay, he could see the signs, and he wasn't even studying. Brothers and sisters, we have knowledge of the signs, that Jesus is coming back soon. And there is a message, and I'm, this is my last breakout session. I have one devotional tomorrow. But since this is a breakout session and you've chosen to be here, I'm going to say something that I wouldn't say just to everyone. Even though it's truth. In the Spirit of Prophecy, it says, the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one so move your families from the city to the country where you can raise your own produce okay so the problem is presented there and the solution is presented there there's many other reasons to move to the country I was still working for my corporate office and working from home. And so I was a manager. I had a team in India. Oh, I love those guys. They're great, strong workers. I had a team in Philadelphia. And I had a team in um, New Mexico, some people in Arizona. And the one person that I was very close to in Philadelphia, even though I'd never met him face to face, he asked me how in the world, because he lived in downtown Philadelphia. He said, how in the world can you live out in a place where there's so few people? And I said, well, the interesting thing is out here in the country, when you pass someone, you wave at them. And they wave back. And you visit your neighbor. And neighbors visit you. And you get to know people. I said, how can you live in a place where everyone you pass, you ignore And that becomes your habit you know that like interactions with human beings are no longer special and so the reason i share these things is because brothers and sisters i want you to be prepared there are going to be people that won't choose to follow that truth and when it hits them they may be able to escape at that time but it's not going to be without severe struggle and suffering and there will come a time when people cannot escape from the cities, it's just too late. The cities are going to be full of disease and hunger and crime, and we need to reach the precious people of the cities from just outside of them, where we can go in and have those deep, impressionable experiences. I would walk into the the city, and people could just look at me. I mean, I don't dress like this every day because I'm usually farming. I do dress like this every week when I'm preaching the Lord's word. Okay. But when we're out in the farm, they can tell something's different about me. So people will, like look at me, and I'm not trying to stand out. You just can't help it. You look different. You're like walking in the middle of the day with no cares, you know, with a bag of beans. I mean, how can you how can you not stand out in this city? Who who like who walks around with a bag of beans? And so people will sometimes be brave enough to ask, like, who are you? Who are you? What do you believe? In fact, I was at an auction one time. And I was just at an auction. We were just at the very end of the auction. I was minding my own business, trying to get some tools for the farm. And a man came up to me just as I was loading, and he interrupted me. He said, excuse me, sir. He said, I noticed you today, and I believe you to be a man of God. And I'm like, we haven't even talked. And he said, what do you believe? When you live these lives that God says, I mean, people will start coming to you. It's not that we don't make less effort to reach people, but it does something. It separates you from a world in a good way, in the way people say, there's something different about you. There's a noble independence to being involved in that kind of life. The reason I can come here, I didn't have to ask my boss to get off work because I don't work for that corporate office. What I ended up doing, I'm going to cut this short because I know some people are curious about how did I leave that. We prayed the Lord provided an opportunity with almost no money, but we sold everything to get out of debt, to pay off our mortgage, and to leave that and to become full-time in agriculture. And it's still a struggle. We're still trying to learn how to make it, especially in, in Arkansas, where it's very difficult to, to farm. Ohio, it's much easier. Um, but in Arkansas, we're still figuring it out. But there's a noble independence. I did not have to ask my boss to get off work to come here. I just had to ask my real boss if he wanted me to come. And now I'm not off work. I'm just continuing my work. OK. So there is a great blessing for you. Brothers and sisters, don't take my word second hand and make a move. Don't move on my word. Study, pray, and then plan well. And if the Lord is calling you out at this time, if the Lord is showing you there might be something better for you, especially if you're really young. I've been talking to these young people because I, I wish someone would have told me then so I wouldn't be so old trying to figure these things out now. I mean especially when i have that youthful energy and you know what i know i have to finish so it's going to be time but i'm just telling you children young people even young people when you go to a farmer's market at your age or anywhere and sell something people will say keep the change if i go they're like where's my change you know their hearts are drawn out to people like you and so you have a power to use that youthful energy, that youthful face, that innocence, you know, doing something different. Just look and see what the spirit of prophecy and the Bible say on these subjects, and I think you'll be amazed. And then if you ever decide to walk in it, I think you'll be even more amazed. That's my testimony. If you wanna pray with me and ask that the Lord will teach you directly, not from my words, but from His, then please um, bow your heads. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for pulling me out of the world taking me off the steps to Antichrist to to receive the glory and honor and power of this world and putting me on a path of the steps to Christ, which also, though, contains such beautiful, sweet things along the way. It's not just a life of toil and suffering. Even through our, our trials and our sufferings and our disappointments, you give us such wonderful blessings. So I pray for each one here that they will be prepared for the trials that are coming upon the world that they will be prepared spiritually, knowing that you are able and willing to do for them what we cannot do for ourselves. And I also pray that you will bring back to their minds that you sympathize with them and that they can sympathize with others. I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about AudioVerse,